The scripture reading today is from Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, just so glad that you're with us today. We're Two weeks out from finishing our series on the book of Philippians, so this week and next week will be our last week. And so there are these final kind of greetings that Paul gives us, which are very rich here at the end. So I thought we'd slow down and just look at a couple of verses as we finish out this series, these beautiful verses, verses 8 and 9, about the things that we should be thinking about, dwelling on in our minds, and to spend a few minutes with that uh, this morning as we come to God's Word, let's spend a moment in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we need a lamp for our feet. We need a light for our path. Even this week, Lord, we have struggled to know what the will of God is, what you desire in us, the sanctification that you're working in us, the decisions that we make, the, the crucifying of the flesh, the pursuit of righteousness and holiness, Lord, we have struggled this week, and so we, we thank you that you are here, and that by your Spirit you are ready, able, willing to reveal yourself. So I pray that you would open our eyes, that we can see wonderful things from your law. I pray that you would open our hearts so that we can be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to confess that one of my favorite uh, genres of, of literature to read is pretty dark. Uh, I love a, a good dystopian novel. Um, if you know what dystopian novels are, that's, uh, that's a, a future, futuristic, oppressive state in some kind of way. Uh, novels that capture that futuristic, oppressive state. It's the opposite of a utopia, where you're, you're envisioning where everything is working well. You know, I like to, to read about how things might fall apart. And, um, and that's been true for a long time. I've read all the classics many times. On, and, um, you know, dystopian sales, book sales, have really skyrocketed in the last 10 years. I don't know if you knew that or not. But all of the classics are selling really well again perhaps for some reasons political or social, that we, we, we have a growing sense, maybe a growing dread, that some of these things may be true. And there's been a debate for a long time about which, which of the, the kind of classic dystopian, futuristic, you know, oppressive state type books really has proven to be the most accurate. And the, the two contenders that are always talked about are Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and 1984 um, by George Orwell. And there's been a long time debate of which one of these books 
written 17 years apart, by the way, which one of them kind of captured our current moment the best? Brave New World was written in 1932. Aldous Huxley, uh, he envisioned a certain type of dystopian state. And then 17 years later, George Orwell wrote the even more popular, even more well-known 1984, where he looked forward to the year 1984 and gave us a picture of that. And both of those books talk about oppression. They talk about um, the war against uh, humanity, but they do so in different ways. So George Orwell's book, 1984, really talks about the oppression from the top down. He talks about things like there's a big brother, right? The, the centralized government that, that is watching you at all times. He talks about thought crime, that they're watching your expression of your faces to see if you're thinking independent thoughts. And then there's this thought police that come and take you away if you are thinking things against the government. There's newspeak, where uh, this is the new language of the republic, where certain things are allowed, you're allowed to say, and every year certain things get taken out of the dictionary because we don't want to think about those things anymore. It's very top-down. And so some have said that's really capturing the, the feeling of today's moment. The much lesser known Brave New World talks about a different dystopia. It's more bottom-up. It's not so much that there's a big brother watching over you and trying to control you. It's that people love to come to, to they become to love their oppression. Screens and sex and drugs and music and other things are all kind of reinforce a passivity so that it's not that someone's telling you you can't think those things or do those things, but where you all become comfortable, so comfortable, in fact, that you don't really care about what's true, what's historical, what's right anymore. So there's been a debate. Which got it more right? Why are those books flying off the racks right now? Well, Neil Postman, in, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is kind of an old book at this point, he argued that, that Huxley's vision was better. He says that, that we, we're amusing ourselves to death, that, that we have um, all of these inputs, and that's what we use to cope with reality. And he's right, of course. And some others have said, maybe in more recent years with our political turmoil, people have been wondering, with all these screens everywhere and seemingly people watching us, perhaps Orwell had a good point as well. But my point this morning in bringing this up is that no matter which dystopia you choose, whichever oppression of the, of the state that you choose, they really have one thing in common. There's other books that we could list as well that have these same things in common. Fahrenheit 451, about burning of books, for instance. And the thing that they have in common is this. Evil and tyranny always attack thinking. That's really where the war happens. It's where the battle happens. It happens in our minds, whether it's a government tyranny, whether it is a social tyranny, whether it is a religious or a cult-like tyranny where someone is trying to control you and what you believe and think, or maybe even a demonic tyranny. The, the Scriptures talk about the forces of evil that are against us. That's a type of tyranny as well. And on every single one of those fronts, no matter which social or internal realm that we're talking about, the battleground is for our minds. 
It's for thinking. They all have one source. They attack the mind because the mind is where we process information. It's where we have images, where we have desires. And the mind is where we understand what we will do and won't do, what we give ourselves to, what we dwell on. And Paul, in these final words in the, in the book of Philippians, is really challenging us that we ought to have virtuous minds, that we ought to have the, the type of minds, we ought to be the type of Christians who protect and grow this sacred battleground, the mind. And he says, here are some things to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, that word there, excellence, is the word for uh, virtuousness. If there's any excellence, virtuousness, anything praiseworthy, think about these things. So I want to ask and answer three questions this morning, the what question, the where question, and the how question. What are the, the virtues of the mind? All right, how do we find, or where do we find them? And then also, how do we become virtuous in our minds? So the first question is this, what are the virtues of the mind? How can we protect this sacred space? And here he lists six things that we ought to think about. The six whatevers here are very important. These are the virtues of the mind. These are the things that we're called to think about. What are they? First, truth. Whatever is true. Now, I'm going to give you the opposite of these so that hopefully you can help. It'll help kind of define what the word actually means. So the opposite here is falsehood. So we think about things that are true, we avoid things that are false. And this is obviously a huge theme in the Scriptures. The Bible advocates living in reality, the true things of God, reality. What is true? Well, it's true that God made the world. It's true that He sustains it by the word of His power. It is true that He is coming again. In fact, the truth that the Scriptures talk about the most or seem to most concerned with is this. Do you believe the true story of the world? That's kind of the basic foundational truth. Do you believe the true story of the world? The good news is truth. In Ephesians 1, he says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is that? The gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You believe the truth, the gospel of salvation. Now, the word gospel is, is the good news, right? Jesus came into the world. It means there's a story there. You need salvation. Well, why do you need salvation? Because you sinned and walked away from God in the Garden of Eden. Do you see how the whole gospel story points to what is true? Now, one of the... the really the most stunning and beautiful things about being a Christian to me. There are many things, but one of them is this. Our faith will never tell you to turn your brain off. Never tell you to avoid thinking about what is true. It's always concerned with the truth. So if you're in a group, social group, governmental group, whatever it is that tells you that thinking is the enemy, 
then you should run. The ability to question, the ability to doubt, the ability to wonder about the truth is integral to any good system, and it's true of the Scriptures as well. Now, of course, when I say that, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be things at the edges that we don't understand, that there's not going to be mysteries that we can't contemplate. You can't remove mystery from the world, and why would you want to? This is part of the joy of living in things that are unknown. So I'm not saying that you have to explain everything, but I'm saying that everything can be looked at and understood on some level. We can welcome big questions about the truth. Now, of course, the Scriptures also will challenge what we think is true. And so there's, there's times when we believe things that are not true, but the pursuit of the truth is always a Christian pursuit. Whatever is true, Paul says, we ought to think about. What's the second one? The second is honor. Whatever is honorable. And here the opposite that, that Paul's really talking about is, is, uh, is frivolousness or, um, you know, a, a kind of escapism. He's talking about thinking and speech and behavior that is dignified and noble. That we are to be people who think about things that are serious, not just things that kind of float in and out, not just kind of popcorn, you know, all the time, in other words. Third, justice. Whatever is just. The opposite here would be unfairness. This is the old idea, the Hebrew idea of justice. It's a huge theme. The right weights, the right measures, the right treating of people. Treating all God's people the same. Not neglecting those who are disabled or unable to care for themselves, the most vulnerable members of society. So someone who has a virtuous mind is thinking about what is right and fair and just, regardless of the consequences. The one who is unfair is thinking, well, I can get by with things. I can do things and and won't be discovered. But he says, justice is a virtue of the mind. Number four, purity. Whatever is pure. The opposite here would be corruption or tainting. And in the Scriptures, this word is often used in sexual context, but not exclusively. It refers to our devotion to God. Those, uh, the Israelites were amongst the nations who would corrupt them, they would taint them, they would lead them away into idolatry. And so uh, Israel now is, is in Rome, and, and they're being led away in some ways by the Romans and others. This is what we're called to think about. Purity, how can I remain pure? Number five, loveliness. Whatever is lovely. And the opposite here would be unpleasantness. These are the things that lift the spirit, that are pleasing to the body and mind. You can think about a, a solo piece of music. You can think about a particular athletic display or something in nature. Something that is pleasing is a good thing to think about. Number six, whatever is commendable or admirable. And the opposite would be of bad reputation or a bad repute. This is the kind of thing that is spoken well of by others, that has a good reputation. And it means avoiding things that are trouble. I was trying to think of an example of this. We went to the, uh, uh, the Cardinals uh, preseason game yesterday. 
uh, sadly losing. But uh, you know, you go to any one of those events, and, uh, and there's always ticket scalpers around. Uh, and we know that word, ticket scalping, that even that word itself is just so negative. It's of bad reputation, right? Um, and so when your kid comes to you and says, Dad, I want to be a ticket scalper one day. Like, ah, you know. And what's wrong with that? I mean, we all buy things at a lower, you know, price and sell them later. That's how business works. But we all recognize there's a line of fairness and there is a something that it can be of good reputation. Surely there are ticket resales people out there who are virtuous. I am certain of it. But ticket scalping has this bad name, right? Because it's of bad reputation. It's not admirable. These are the virtues of the mind. So what are the virtues? All of those six things that we just said. Now, what I want to ask next is this. Where do we find these virtues? Where do we find them? And the answer, the short answer is, wherever they exist. Anywhere. Paul says over and over again, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever, whatever, whatever. Wherever we find them. Now, there's a couple of great places to find them. The premier place to find them, of course, is in the Scriptures. Let's go to what's obvious. The Scriptures contain the most virtuous and excellent things for the Christian to be consumed with in their thinking. It has the excellent things of God. Now, nearly all the words that Paul uses here are Old Testament words. He pulls them out from the, from the Scriptures. Truth, justice, right, purity. These are concepts that are familiar to Paul already. And so to pursue the virtuous mind, you must be intimately familiar with the Scriptures. Because that's where excellence is found. We, we read it, we listen to it, we memorize it, we meditate on it. How do we do what Paul says here to think about these things? We have to do it by going to the Scriptures. It is the premier place for Christian thinking. The premier source is the Scriptures, but it's not the only source. Whatever is true. Whatever is noble. Six times whatever, followed by two times any. If there is any excellence, virtuousness, if there is any praiseworthiness. A good example of this is the word lovely that he uses here. Whatever is lovely. This is not a word that's used anywhere else in the Bible. Now, the Old Testament has words for beauty and things like that, but this word was unique to Paul's time. It's the only time in the Bible it's used, and yet it's used quite frequently in epitaphs of writings and wills and stuff like that of the Greek tradition that we have, other writings from the time. So this is not an Old Testament word, not an Old Testament concept, but here Paul uses the language of his day to say this is something that Christians should think about. Is that okay for Paul to do? Is that okay for him to grab a word and say this is what, what we should be thinking about, whatever is lovely? Some have even accused Paul of copying straight from a list of Stoic moral philosophy for this, this whole list. So he's basically just copying what somebody else wrote, and he's trying to incorporate it into the Christian thought. 
What do, we, what do we say to that accusation? Well, number one, I already said it. No, he didn't. <laughs> um, these thoughts didn't originate with Greeks. This is not moral philosophy only from the Stoics. The idea of truth, justice, and the rest is, is deeply woven into the Hebrew Scriptures, right? This is ancient, way more ancient than whatever is current in that day. Paul doesn't need the Greeks to understand what is moral. He's already been steeped in it in his whole life. He's already been educated in the system of morality that he's bringing here. So that's the first answer. The second answer would be, so what? (laughs) Of course Paul read the Stoics. What's wrong with doing that? The Stoics had a lot of wisdom. He was always comparing it to the Scriptures. He was not you know, just receiving it wholeheartedly. But he read the Stoics. Of course he did. He held it up against Scripture. He loved the wisdom of his day. Now, he still believed that wisdom of the world without Christ was ultimately foolishness. So it's not like he just bought into that system. But he absolutely believed that truth could be found anywhere in the world because it is God's world. I mean, look at his sermon uh, in Athens when he comes in and he says, look, I perceive that you're very religious. I see all these, these good things that you're doing. He's saying this to a bunch of pagans who worship thousands of gods. And he's saying, God's not far from any one of you because each of those idols that they worship came from God's world and the ideas behind them that they wanted from those idols, those ideas came from the God who made the world. Now, they were wrong. They were off base. And I'm not saying that they were close to the truth in the sense that it's the same truth, but I'm saying that truth can be found in the world. In other words, as has been variously attributed to Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, or St. Augustine, this phrase, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. We have the guiding truth. We have the Scriptures, but we also have the world. We have God's Word and we have His world. In theology, we call this special revelation and general revelation. There's a special revelation that God has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. He's given us the truth. That is the premier source. But we also have general revelation that God reveals Himself in all kinds of ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth His His handiwork. This is God's world. Solomon's Proverbs, many of them were written by him. Some of them he incorporated from other other sources. This is how he, it's the collected sayings. But they became wisdom for the people of God and they became the scriptures. So where do we find truth, beauty, justice, wherever they are found in God's world? The premier source is the scriptures. The overriding force is the Scriptures, of course, above all else. Third question this morning, how do we become virtuous in our minds? How do we become virtuous? There's two things that Paul really advocates that we do in this passage. He says it's through meditation and through practice. It's through deep thinking and deep practice, in other words, Meditation. Look with me at verse 8 at the end. He says, whatever, 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 all these things. If there is anything worthy of praise, 
think about these things. What you have learned, verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me. Think about these things. All the things that I just mentioned. All the things that you have heard. All the things that you have learned. The tradition handed down from the elders. The, the, the faith once given. All of the good things. Think about these things. The word to think there is just to take into account. Give it consideration. Incorporate these into your worldview. What are you thinking about? What do we dwell on? How do we place a guard over our lives so that our thought life is cared for? Well, I think the, the place that we start is that we take an inventory of what it is that we think about. If you just do that even mentally right now or write it down later, what are the things that I think about? What are the types of things that I dwell on? What do you fall asleep thinking about? I think that's a good question. You fall asleep with your worries. You fall asleep with your desires and ambitions. You fall asleep with the comforting thoughts of X, Y, or Z, how you're going to be provided for. And what's on your mind when you wake up? What types of things? And we come back to this passage and we say, are these virtuous, excellent, praiseworthy? It's challenging. What do we meditate on? Meditation and then practice. Look at the end of the verse here. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is where it all comes together, of course, because we're not just supposed to have virtuous minds. We're supposed to have virtuous minds set in a life of excellence. There's a relationship between thinking and practice, between what we give ourselves to in our minds and what we do with our lives. There is a deep relationship. This is where uh, the Scripture tells us this over and over again. Paul says, for instance, in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a relationship between your life transformed and the renewing of your mind. The transformation of how you live is connected, in other words, to your thinking. And your thinking is connected to your transformation. So positively, if you are dwelling on virtuous things, then we start to do more virtuous things. Negatively, if you're not practicing excellence and praiseworthiness, something is likely off with your thinking because they are connected. This is what Paul advocates for us when we become virtuous we, through meditation and through practice. But we need to recognize that you can't one day decide to be virtuous. You can't decide that I'm just going to be excellent. This is where we would diverge and say, well, the Stoics may have some wisdom, but the wisdom without Christ is foolishness to the Greeks. The salvation comes from Jesus Christ who changes our minds, who makes us like Him. 
through union with Jesus Christ is how we become virtuous. It is not through our own effort. It's not just through our meditation and our practice. It's through Christ gripping us, changing our hearts and minds. And we can't do that on our own. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 7 through 9. It says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that's set on the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. I should have put verse 10 in there. It goes and it talks about Jesus, the, the Spirit with, of Christ. He says, the mind that's set on the flesh, it cannot please God. This, this need that you ha- and I have, this desire that we have for virtuousness, for excellence, we want to be these type of people who dwell on deep thoughts and who practice good things. We all want that, but there's a gap if our minds are set on the flesh. How do they not become set on the flesh? It is those who have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And He changes us from hostile in mind to having flesh and life in the mind. We still have carnal minds. We still have worldly minds. We still have minds or places that are battlefields, and that is a continual battle. But if we are in the Spirit, he says here, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, then your mind is set right, and your thinking is right increasingly. And increasingly, that's where you'll want to dwell. That's where you will stay, because that's where Christ is, and Christ is your life. Christ changes our mind. And then we grow in virtuosity, virtuousness. That's why Paul, remember earlier in the book, in the famous passage of Philippians 2, have the same mind that was in Christ. Have the mind of Christ amongst yourselves. It's Jesus' excellence. It's Jesus' virtuousness. It's Jesus' praiseworthiness that gives us our own virtuousness. He embodies all of these things. The the six whatevers can apply to Jesus. He embodies the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the Scripture says. He embodies honor. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor. Justice. Paul says, same word as righteousness in the Bible, justice and righteousness or rightness. Paul says Christ is our righteousness. We can go down all six virtues here and apply them to Christ. He embodies those things. So to think about Christ, to dwell on Christ, is to dwell on virtue, is to dwell on excellence. When we return to Him, we make our life in Him, then then He leads us in this way. Our thinking is changed over time. This is where the battlefield is. It's a battle for the mind. Whenever there is any kind of tyranny, whatever kind of tyranny it would be, it would be attacking us on this level, but our minds are free. If, in in fact, we are dwelling on Christ, who is our life. Let's pray.